I'm going to tell you something. My life is changing and it's not great. Somewhere I live, of the freedom of speech. Well, the next one. It still looks like a war zone here. It looks like ground zero. Well, the next round hit my husband, hit my soldier. Does he have a crush on me? No. Figures. I just believe I'll die for my cause. Hearing is seeing. From APM, American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Who Needs an English Major? I always enjoyed reading and writing in high school, but I didn't think an English major would actually get me a job. The liberal arts are a hallmark of American higher education. The great advantage of a liberal education, open to all people, is that it allows merit to rise to the top. But the tough economy and soaring college tuition rates are pressuring liberal arts programs to prove their worth. Students don't exactly have these lofty ideas. It's more like, how can I get through this, paying the least amount of money? I'm Stephen Smith. In the coming hour, who needs an English major? The future of liberal arts education from American Radio Works. First, this news. Back in 1981, I was an English major. I went to a small liberal arts school in the Midwest, and I burrowed deep into novels by George Eliot and William Faulkner. But to graduate, I also had to take a science class. I was never much of a science student in high school. Still, I chose Albert Einstein. And many of you have told me you are pleasantly surprised how interesting physics is, right? That is not Einstein, that's... Sun Kyu Kim, I teach physics at McAllister College, and I've been teaching at McAllister for the last 46 years. Professor Kim still teaches one of the most popular classes at McAllister, which is in St. Paul, Minnesota. Kim reckons that close to 10,000 students have taken the course that most of us call physics for poets. Technically, it's called contemporary concepts of physics because we start with Einstein and then do cosmology, astrophysics, and quantum physics. So what physicists have been trying to do is to explain and describe all the structures we see in the universe, but in a beautiful way. Beauty is very important. Okay, so let me point out some of those I spent four years getting an English major at McAllister, but for two of those years, I had to take a bunch of other classes not in English, like physics. Well, it's true of students who major in any subject. This is the current president of McAllister, Brian Rosenberg. One of the fundamental principles of a liberal arts education is that you get breadth as well as depth. And so whether you're an English major or a biology major or a physics major, you're going to take classes in that area, but also in areas outside that discipline so that your major work is reinforced by that breath. If you believe that the universe exploded into existence in a big bang, then the temperature was very high in the beginning. Sung-Kyu Kim's physics class was a revelation to me. He made the big bang cool. The theory of relativity was mind-opening. And the ideas I was learning did actually inform the way I read books and, eventually, how I practice my profession. For example, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. One interpretation of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is you are part of what you're trying to observe. (laughs) You can't separate the observed from the observer. In other words, you can't be an outsider looking in. As long as you're looking, you're part of the picture. You're changing what you look at by being there. That idea stuck with me, because as a journalist, I'm always asking how my being there changes the scene that I'm watching. Exposing students to things and perspectives and ideas that they didn't know of before uh, and allowing them to find and pursue their passion is exactly one of the points of a liberal arts education. It's one of the reasons why our educational system is not set up the way it's set up, say, in Europe or Japan where you select your area of study before you arrive in college. It's that opportunity for choice that's an important part of the way we structure things. This is the core promise of the liberal arts major, the value proposition. Whether you get your BA in English, biology, economics, or history, you learn a broad range of stuff that will help you better understand the one area in which you decide to plunge deeply. You're learning how to learn. This liberal arts approach to higher education is uniquely American. Other countries don't do it quite this way. And by some accounts, the liberal education in America is under threat. Or at least it's losing ground to more vocational majors like accounting, engineering, and business. I always questioned those in my class who were philosophy majors or similar because I I just don't know what you're going to do with that in life. Ashley Smith got her BA recently in marketing and advertising. She went to the University of St. Thomas, just down the road from McAllister in St. Paul. I always enjoyed reading and writing in high school, but I didn't think an English major would actually get me a job. I mean, being a writer is great, but 
I was really interested in a degree that was going to get me a career in something that I thought would be moderately profitable. Ashley Smith and others like her have made business the most popular major in America, 22% of all undergraduate degrees awarded. Humanities and the liberal arts now account for fewer than 10% of all majors, a steep drop from three decades ago. With the U.S. economy struggling to recover from the Great Recession, and with college tuition going up faster than inflation, liberal arts programs are struggling to persuade skeptical students and parents that what they teach is practical and relevant. So why worry? I worry about having a a thoughtful citizenry, and I'll give you a particular example. Victor Farrell is the former president of Beloit College, a small liberal arts school in Wisconsin, and he's author of the book Liberal Arts at the Brink. Today, 15% of all college students take a single course in history, or that is to say 85% of them don't take one. And I think if you have a nation that doesn't have a sense of history, when they set out to send an army into a Middle Eastern country and someone assures them that they will be greeted as liberators and flowers will be strewn in their path, they, they may not ask the question, are we really sure that's true? And I think that's dangerous for, for our nation and for our world. From APM, American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Who Needs an English Major? The Future of Liberal Arts Education. I'm Stephen Smith. A lot has been said in recent years about the vanishing liberal arts, Less is said about how liberal arts programs are changing to try to survive. Over the coming hour, we'll visit liberal arts programs that are embracing new approaches to the four-year bachelor's degree. They're updating a model of American education that has prevailed for more than a century. The modern liberal arts college is an American invention, but its roots go back through the American colonies to England and back to the ancient world. The actual term is liberal arts and sciences. It describes the breadth of general knowledge that a well-educated citizen is supposed to possess. The modern liberal arts curriculum includes literature, history, languages, philosophy, mathematics, and science. But what does the liberal part mean? Liberal subjects are subjects that are taught disinterestedly. Louis Menand is an English professor at Harvard. He writes frequently about higher education. Which means that we are open to any kind of inquiry into the areas that we study or teach without regard to any vocational utility, any possibility of financial reward, or any ideological purpose, but we're simply openly inquiring into our subjects. In other words, learning for the sake of learning. This is how liberal education has been taught since the 19th century. Victor Farrell says 100 years ago, most college students were men, Most were from the American elite, and most of their fathers had gone to college before them. Hardly anyone went to college to get a particular kind of education. It was the next step. It was what you did before you went out into the workplace and did what you were going to do for the rest of your life. So by and large, college was not training for the workplace. It was preparation to lead a decent moral life in the privileged classes. But after World War II, the expectations changed. Congress passed the GI Bill of Rights to help veterans return to civilian life. Movie theater newsreels explained the benefits of the GI Bill, including money for post-secondary education. Any kind of education and in any part of the country, trade school, college, university, tuition is taken care of, funds are provided for laboratory fees, books, supplies, and equipment are included. Millions of vets used the GI Bill to get a degree. American colleges and universities expanded to meet the surge in demand. Victor Farrell says the GIs knew that college offered a chance to climb into a higher social class, but the students made new demands of the liberal arts system. And the new people, many of their parents hadn't gone to college, and they wanted to know what were they going to learn to do that would improve their lives, because their objective was a better life, a better job, more job security, a better income, and so forth. The students before then hadn't asked that question. They just assumed it would all work out. Before the post-war boom, private liberal arts schools made up a greater share of the American higher education sector. Today, the overwhelming majority of college students attend public institutions, including community colleges and public universities. In recent decades, dozens upon dozens of small liberal arts colleges have closed. Others have shifted their emphasis to career and professional education. The liberal arts programs that remain face stiff economic and competitive pressures. 
An increasing number are experimenting with new ways of attracting students. They're reshaping their programs to cut costs and to try to connect the liberal arts to the real world. Antioch College alumni were back on campus this summer in Yellow Springs, Ohio. They were volunteering to tile bathrooms, scrape peeling paint, yank weeds, and refinish furniture. For decades, Antioch alums have been pulling on their work gloves in the week before their annual college reunion to help maintain the school. Despite a fine reputation, Antioch always seemed to struggle financially. But this time, the cause was especially urgent. Antioch closed down three years ago. And against great odds, the college is reopening this fall. Ann Stockton, class of 65, came in from Philadelphia. This place is important. I don't want it to die. I want it to be here for the next generation of students who need what Antioch is very special for. I came here to become a Renaissance person, and I think that's what we need to send out into the world. A determined group of Antioch alumni is struggling to restart this school in rural Ohio, north of Dayton. Antioch closed down for a complicated mix of reasons, increasingly brutal competition among small colleges, years of financial trouble, deep management problems at the college, and plummeting enrollment. When Antioch shut down in 2008, fewer than 300 students remained. College officials say that the revived Antioch will create a sustainable, affordable 21st century model for small liberal arts colleges. I think the tough questions for us as for everyone are, how do you not look like everybody else? That's Mark Roosevelt, the new Antioch College president. He's former head of the Pittsburgh Public Schools. Roosevelt's plan, in part, is to start really small, concentrate on basics, and get less small, but never big. I think what happens to a lot of places is the pressure is always to grow. I mean, we have these philosophy courses, but we don't have much on existentialism, or we don't have much on ancient philosophy. Well, honestly, um, if you're going to be a liberal arts college that does some things really well, you're going to have to do some other things not at all. A list of what Antioch won't be doing compared to other colleges is pretty long, at the outset anyway. It has admitted a class of just 35 students for this fall, just a few more than Antioch's first graduating class back in 1857. They'll arrive on a campus with six tenure-track faculty members, another half-dozen visiting or adjunct professors. As for the campus itself... Well, we're standing at the Horseshoe in front of Antioch Hall or Main Hall, and then McGregor, which is where most of the new classes will be for the students in that building which you see them working on. They've replaced the windows. Antioch has a broad, grassy campus with a mix of classic brick buildings and 60s-era glass and concrete. Eight of the college's 25 buildings are reopening. They include the library, but not the gym. The school could only afford so many. As for academics, Antioch will offer the core subjects of the liberal arts, science, the humanities, social sciences, and mathematics. We had you know, very limited funds that we had to start very small and build up slowly. Former Antioch literature professor Jean Gregorick was part of a team hired to design the new curriculum. She says the disciplines may be traditional, but they're not narrow. In fact, there's a lot that you can do with history or <laughs> literature or philosophy or anthropology that that can actually encompass quite a bit. President Mark Roosevelt says Antioch students will shape their own individual majors, but from a common starting point. The philosophical intellectual belief is that students need to have a platform from which to pursue their more individualized studies. So we have 24 foundation courses of which students will have to take 14. And and the thought behind that is, you know, before you go off and craft a very individualized um, study, it's important, maybe even essential, to have a platform of basic knowledge. Now, it just so happens that I believe that, and it also just so happens that that's an economical delivery model, so that you don't need as many faculty to be teaching. The revived Antioch's liberal arts program will be rooted in a contemporary issue that the school considers critical, global sustainability. Students will be brought together in campus-wide seminars on food, health, energy, and water. They'll be co-taught by different faculty members. Um, Water could be taught by a poet, uh, by an ecologist, Um, by somebody from the philosophy department because it has such enormous reach in our lives. Um, So that's a liberal arts application to also preparation for work and for life. 
Another prominent feature of the Antioch curriculum will be a mandatory off-campus work program. Antioch requires students to alternate each term on campus with a term of full-time paid work off-campus. Students work across the country and internationally at businesses, at schools, social service programs, and government agencies. Since liberal arts colleges have a long tradition of resisting demands to be relevant, Antioch's work program has been a distinctive feature of the college's approach. It dates back to the 1920s. It's based on the belief that the liberal arts should connect to the real world. Retired Antioch history professor Bob Fogarty says the work program gets students out of their small, isolated ivory tower in rural Ohio. And if they're at all curious, they'll realize... um, First of all, in the case of America, it's a really big country, and there are lots and lots of different people, and they're not all like them. The work program at Antioch was a big draw for incoming freshman Forrest Humphrey of Viroqua, Wisconsin. I wasn't really too interested in just being enclosed in a campus for four years. I wanted to to be out in the world and uh, explore, I suppose, rather than kind of being shut up and then after four years being pushed out into the world and expected to just get along and find a job and do all the things you're supposed to do without any kind of uh, experience or, like, testing the waters. By the way, there's another appealing aspect for this first class of 35 students at the revived Antioch. All four years of tuition are free, and most students are also getting financial aid for room and board. But they're taking a risk. If the school folds before this year's class graduates... It's unclear if other institutions will accept the course credits that the Antioch students will have earned. Antioch lost its accreditation when it closed. Students are gambling that the college will get its accreditation back. And the student that takes that chance, who is a highly qualified, competent, sharp kid, is going to be a very unusual student. Lee Morgan chairs the Antioch Board of Trustees. Morgan freely concedes that the school may go bust again. And the worst that would happen is they'd get a fabulous education for two years, and we go out of existence and they go back to some conventional school, have to pay the full ride, and still become an amazing contributor to our society. Before too long, Antioch will have to start charging new students tuition. But will anyone take that risk? The college hopes to slowly build back up to around 1,400 students. That's on the smallish size compared to many other schools. This whole experiment is backed by Antioch's alumni. The college's trustees have pledged $9 million over the next three years to help cover operating costs, but another $8 million is still needed. Lee Morgan has been one of the big benefactors. The assumption is that the college is going to have to rely on alumni for the next couple years. This is the startup phase. This is high risk. We're looking for alums that are uh, willing to take a chance on a vision. The goal here is something new and radically different. And we would not be able to raise this money uh, just on nostalgia. And frankly, it's our last chance. Um, The alumni patience will wear out if we're not successful this time. That's my personal prediction. The revived Antioch College will be radically different from conventional liberal arts schools in how it grounds traditional subjects in immediate modern-day problems and issues, and how the faculty are organized to teach subjects as a team, The trick is whether the college's money will hold out long enough to test the concept. Small private residential colleges like Antioch have become the symbol of liberal arts education in America. But actually, more undergrads are studying liberal arts subjects at public colleges and universities than at private schools. And a growing number of public programs are changing how they teach liberal arts to attract students and to get them through to graduation. Okay, can we get back in a circle here? We're going to talk about plant parts. Tromping through the wet grass in muddy rubber boots, Portland State University senior Tammy Rodriguez leads a group of curious third graders to the edge of a vegetable plot. What do you think this is? Root. Why is a root important to a plant? Helps um, drink water. It does. It does. It sucks the water up from the soil. Mm-hmm. This excursion to an organic farm is part of the liberal arts program at Portland State University in Oregon. Community health major Tammy Rodriguez, sociology major Mickey Sarkar, and about a dozen other Portland State seniors are in the fields on this rainy day. They're teaching kids from economically troubled city neighborhoods how food is grown. The lessons include plants and pollinators. What parts of this bee can you name? 
Um, uh, the, the pollen basket leg. The thorax. Yeah, the thorax. If we had a thorax, where would it be? Right here. Right yeah, right on our neck. This field work is part of a Portland State course called Hunger in the City. The course's instructor is here today, too, observing the college students. Celine Fitzmorris says this is what's called a senior capstone class. A capstone is a service learning course. Each course has a nonprofit community partner and students do a final project that meets the needs of the community partner in some way. In this case, the community partner is an organic farm and education center on Sauvy Island, a few miles up the Willamette River from Portland. This right here is collard greens. Okay, so I want everybody to try it. If you don't like it, you can discreetly turn away and spit. It tastes like greens. The Capstone program is just one of several ways Portland State has changed its approach to undergraduate education over the last two decades to make the liberal arts more relevant. In the past, seniors might have spent their last year working alone on a big thesis paper. The Capstone, as the name suggests, is meant to finish off a student's four-year college experience, but in a more collaborative way. Celine Fitzmorris. All graduating seniors at PSU are supposed to take what they've learned in their major and apply that learning in a capstone setting. So we have students from a number of different majors coming together, taking the knowledge that they've gained and actually applying it to a real world issue or problem. Portland State is among a growing number of public universities that are transforming the way they teach the liberal arts. The goal is to make undergraduate education more practical and engaging both to the students and the community. Unlike the old liberal studies credo of learning for learning's sake, this is learning with a purpose. In fact, PSU's motto is, let knowledge serve the city. And while many of the course offerings are longtime staples of the curriculum, how they're taught is different. Well, now, this Barbie, which is a so-called ethnic Barbie, look at these feet. They're huge. And they're flat, right? This is a women's studies class at Portland State taught by Professor Leslie Batchelder. Today the class is deconstructing that icon of femininity, the Barbie doll. Batchelder holds up a dark-skinned Barbie and her Caucasian cousin. This gal's got some nice platforms here. She can run. You know, she's brown. None of the blonde white Barbies come with feet like this. This class is part of PSU's University Studies program, which was created in the mid-1990s when Portland State began to overhaul the way it taught general education courses. Gen ed classes are required of all undergraduates, regardless of their majors. Leslie Batchelder says under the older, more traditional system, undergraduates spent their first two years of college picking away at these general education requirements before declaring a major. And then the third and fourth year of your college career, you're supposedly doing your major. You're focusing like on your specific thing, whatever that is. Like if it's biology, you're just doing all your courses in biology. And at PSU, we sort of thought, well, the problem with that is that in the first two years, you're very much sort of picking from this laundry list of classes, and nothing's related to anything else. Portland state officials say that back in the 1990s, too many of their freshmen were getting discouraged by coursework that didn't seem relevant to real life. Too many were quitting. So Portland State created what it calls freshman inquiry courses, based around big themes such as ways of knowing, design and society, or globalization and sustainability. Instead of a big lecture hall, the freshman course has about 35 students. It lasts the entire academic year, with the same instructors who teach as a team. The students often lead class discussions with the instructor as a guide. So it's really about helping students construct knowledge together. Shauna Kerrigan helps run the university studies program. So rather than a faculty member, we used to call it the sage on the stage, engaging in what we call the banking education, as if we were depositing knowledge into students. And almost like an ATM card come final times, we want to pull out all that knowledge exactly the way we reported it in. Instead, we're talking about an entirely different form of education. And regardless of the particular subject matter, the freshman inquiry course is meant to build a base on which by the end of four years, the senior capstone will rest. Here's Professor Leslie Batchelder again. Theoretically, in freshman inquiry, you're practicing all the things that they'll do throughout the rest of their college career. So like when I say we talk about numeracy or writing, we're starting to lay down that foundation of what is expected in college writing. What is expected in terms of being able to analyze and produce 
um, important statistical information. Portland State's long, tree-lined campus runs through the city's downtown. Some 30,000 students go here, but only half of them go full-time. PSU has a high percentage of adult learners and of students who are working their way through school. Only a few thousand actually live on campus. One goal of the year-long freshman course is to help create a sense of college community that would otherwise be hard to achieve at a commuter college. The 35 students in a given freshman inquiry class may not do laundry together, they may not hang out in the dorm lounge, but at least they see each other week in and week out. Since the university studies program began in the mid-90s, about 10% fewer freshmen are dropping out. PSU officials say they want to do even better. Hey folks, can we just um, gather up for a moment so I can tell you the plan for today? Across the Portland State campus, the Hunger in the City senior capstone class is meeting. Instructor Celine Fitzmorris and the students are reviewing work they've done out at the organic farm. The students huddle in groups of three or four around final projects that will be a big part of their term's grade. One team is designing a quiz for the elementary school field trip kids to take after they learn about pollination. And then we are going to use Velcro to label the parts of the bee and the, the flower. Celine Fitzmorris says the university studies program has four cardinal goals it hopes students will achieve by the end of the capstone class. As a result of being in this course and working in the community, that we develop a sense of empathy, that we have an understanding of diverse populations, that we learn how to communicate effectively with each other and with different groups of people, and that you have some sense for your social and ethical responsibility in the world. So it's not just about becoming um, a writer or an economist, but becoming a well-rounded citizen or person living in this world. Hi, my name is Jean Vust, and I'm calling on behalf of the Salvi Island Center. Uh, we're doing a we're doing a uh, inventory of edible gardens in the Portland Public School District, and uh, I was wondering if I could ask you a few questions real quick. Senior English major Jean Wust was on one of the capstone teams. The survey of city gardens that he helped conduct was meant to assist the organic farm at Savi Island improve its food education program. I caught up with him after the school year ended and asked if the capstone class really did bring his education full circle. Not really. Didn't really feel like I learned much. I got to employ my, you know, communication skills in ways that I already am. But in the end, I mean, in the end, basically what happened was in my group, being the only English major there, I ended up writing the big final paper. And that was it. And I felt that I could have done a lot better job if I had been, you know, me writing a big final paper and it was actually more in the vein of something that I could actually engage with. About literature? About literature or, or, or about, you know, theory or about anything more... You would have preferred to have done a final thesis in English? or a... I would definitely have done a final thesis in English on, a, on the drop of a pin or hat, whatever the expression is. But surveys show that many PSU students describe the capstone classes as transformational. Tammy Rodriguez says the capstone on hunger in the city changed her life. First off, as a 50-year-old returning to finish her bachelor's degree, she had some catching up to do. I think it has definitely um, increased my communication abilities. Before, I had strong opinions, but to get them out there and voice them, I wasn't really eager to do. Not an option in her capstone. I mean, every time you turn around, you're being put in a group, and there's a presentation to do, and part of your grade, it depends on if you speak. So I, so I was forced to figure out how to communicate uh, for this capstone. You know, we worked with third graders, so I was forced to figure out how to bring um, the vocabulary needed down to their level without losing its meaning. Tammy Rodriguez was always interested in food and nutrition. Her part-time day job is running the education program at a farmer's market. But the capstone class convinced her to change plans going forward. Instead of going to grad school in public health, she wants to get a master's of science in sustainability education. And she might even start her own educational farm. Portland State University professor Leslie Batchelder says the school had to change its approach to teaching liberal arts because students have changed. She says when she was in college back in the 70s, college was viewed as an experience, a way to open your mind. Students could afford to be laid back. It was a lot cheaper then. (laughs) <laughs> right? So students, rightly so, don't exactly have these lofty ideals. It's more like, how can I get through this, paying the least amount of money 
my students are all working full time, you know, they have these huge loans and, you know, they've come to regard education as a product, as a ticket to a job or, you know, some a commodity. This is Stephen Smith. You're listening to an American Radio Works documentary, Who Needs an English Major? The Future of Liberal Arts Education. Coming up... Any job skill that you learn today will be obsolete in five years. Any job skill. Consequently, learning how to learn is incredibly important. To find out more about the history and future of liberal arts education in America, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, you can subscribe to our weekly education podcast. You can let us know what you think of this program, and you can explore more than 150 documentaries on a wide range of subjects. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. Who Needs an English Major will continue in just a moment from APM, American Public Media. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Who Needs an English Major? The Future of the Liberal Arts in the United States. I'm Stephen Smith, and I've come to Charlestown, West Virginia, which is a small community a couple hours northwest of Washington, D.C., a historic place which was founded by George Washington's brother, Charles, and where a lot of Civil War activity happened. But I came here to visit the academic center of a university with 90,000 students. It's American Public University system, and the campus center is located at the intersection of North George Street and the railroad tracks. It is a four-story brick-and-stone building, and you won't find a single student inside. That's because American Public University system, a for-profit university, has 90,000 students attending all their classes online. This is the bricks-and-mortar home to a virtual campus. Welcome to American Public University's online campus. I'd like to show you just how easy it is to use. I'm Kess, a student at APU, and I'll be your guide. Like all three-dimensional colleges and universities, the campus tour, led by a student, is a staple of American Public University's marketing package. But you obviously don't have to go to West Virginia to take a look at APUS. You just go online. Let's look more at the campus, and then we will explore the classroom. American Public University System is a 100% online, fully accredited university. That's Wally Boston, president of APUS. We try to educate adults who are primarily employed. 91% of our students are, are working. We're established to provide them with an education that helps them either further their career professionally or you know, they, they simply have an interest in, in a particular course or a particular degree or a program. What sets APUS apart from most other for-profit colleges is the level of its commitment to the liberal arts. Most for-profits concentrate on narrowly focused degree programs, such as business, computers, healthcare, and criminal justice. APUS offers those degrees, but 14% of its students are in liberal arts programs, which is higher than the national average. APUS wants to demonstrate that you don't have to sit around a seminar table to talk about books and ideas. Tim Cowcutt is in the backyard of his home in Chesapeake, Virginia, with his wife and their toddler, Asen. Alicia is filling the, the swimming pool with water, and my son is watching. He, he loves water. Bathtubs, pools, and Wawa means water. 26-year-old Tim Calcutt is a U.S. Marine Corps recruiter. He recently graduated from American Public University Systems with a B.A. in political science, one of the liberal arts. Calcutt wants to go into public policy someday, so political science seemed a good fit. He shopped for a college on the Internet like any consumer, weighing cost, convenience, and quality. An online degree was his only option. I was married. I was working full-time as a U.S. Marine, and I needed to... uh, get my college education. So leaving a full-time career to uh, get a college degree for which I'd have to pay a lot more didn't make sense as a, as a married man who wanted to grow his family. So this is, this is the computer, and of course it's going to be the baby's room in, in uh, about a month and a half. Calcutt and his wife have another child on the way, so the computer he used to attend college will have to find a new room. Back in June 2000, when he first enrolled, Calcutt was a combat trainer at a military base in California. I completed my degree when I was in Coronado, California. I was an instructor at the Expeditionary Warfare Training Group Pacific. And so I would work there during the day, and then in the evenings and on Saturdays, take my laptop down to the Coronado Public Library, set up, and uh, 
be a college student. <laughs> in his time at APUS, Tim Calcutt never met any of his professors face to face. These have been graded, and I honestly, I don't remember who got what grade, uh, but I'll click on Kurt Dahlman. Hello, everyone. Here. My name is Kurt Dahlman, and I'm here to tell you a little bit about a game called Fight Night Champion. I'm in a conference room at American Public University's Academic Center in West Virginia, and I'm peering into a virtual course on public speaking by looking over the shoulder of its instructor. I'm Everett Corum. I am a Ph.D. in theater and media arts, and I'm the program director here at the university for the humanities, philosophy, and religion, and also the foreign languages. A few years back, APUS asked Corum to create the public speaking course, so he designed an eight-week curriculum that covers the fundamental principles. Hi, everyone. I'm Ev Corum, and I'll be guiding you through this class for the next eight weeks. This is Corum's welcome message to the class. It's an introductory public speech that he posts at the start of each term. So please read the announcement below and review the syllabus thoroughly. On the discussion board, you will find a forum called Q&A, where you may ask any questions you have about this class of the art of public speaking. American Public University System classes don't meet at a set time. The assignments are posted at the start of each week. Students can log on, day or night, as their schedules allow. Class dialogue takes place on discussion boards, and participation is a big part of the grade. Karen Powell is the head of academic affairs at APUS. She compared the online classroom to the days when she taught students face-to-face, and being in the same room, she says, is not such an advantage. Typically, you've got the students in the back of the class who hide behind their laptops or their Blackberries or their books or they close their eyes, and you've got the few that are in the front discussing. In an online environment, there will never be more than 25 students in our classes. The average size is 14. Your voice will always be there because you're required to be there and engaged. You can't just sit in the back and hide. If you sit in the back and hide, you won't pass. Uh, The way this works is... Right now, they have to upload to YouTube or some other service and then put the embed code into the classroom. In Ev Corum's virtual classroom, we're looking at some of the public speaking assignments that the students have recorded on video. I'm sure everyone's heard a horror story or two about Walmart. I'd like to share with you some of the great and amazing things that the company does that the media tends to leave out. In the four minutes I have, I will not even begin to scratch the surface of the great things that the company does. This student has been working at a Walmart store for the past five years. Now that you know a little bit about Walmart as a business... Now, what I would say to this student is your energy is good, but your tone is a little flat. So let's go for a little greater vocal variety and uh, generate maybe just a little more enthusiasm. She's very well prepared in this speech. She knows exactly what she's going to say. I would love to see, and sometimes I do, but not as frequently as I would like to, I would love to see students giving speeches in front of other students. Uh, I have seen students give speeches in front of their children and their animals who come walking into the frame, or you can hear the dog barking in the background. Annual tuition at APUS is $6,000, about the same as many state colleges and universities, but far less than other for-profits and private nonprofit schools. Unlike most of higher education, APUS hasn't raised tuition in a decade. It doesn't have to pay for dorms or football fields or tenured faculty. And the company makes money. In 2010, it reported a profit of $30 million on revenues of $198 million. So even if the number of majors is declining in this country, at least one school is making the liberal arts pay off. What's that? Who's that right there? A doggy. No, that would be baby. What does a doggy say? Hello. Uh, no, that's a cat. Hello. Back in Chesapeake, Virginia, Tim Calcutt shares a book with his son, Asen. At the moment, they disagree a bit about the inherent meaning of the text. After a few more years in the Marines, Calcutt plans to go for a master's degree in political science, but this time from a school with walls and windows. And while some surveys show that employers don't necessarily discriminate against online degrees, grad schools are more skeptical. I understand that that a degree online is not... um, extremely attractive to to a lot of universities, even though it's accredited, and that's a great thing that, that I have going for me. And I'm really interested in international affairs, probably just a master's degree at a university in Virginia. After that, uh, working in policy, working as, as an assistant to, to policymakers, perhaps for corporations, that's where I'd like to be maybe in my 30s. Tim Calcutt is pleased with his degree from American Public University System. 
And while he might have always preferred to go to a college with real classrooms and with a library filled with books, APUS had what he needed at the time, low cost and high convenience. Listening to an American Radio Works documentary, Who Needs an English Major? The Future of Liberal Arts Education. I'm Stephen Smith. Small liberal arts colleges face increasing economic and competitive pressure to demonstrate their value in the modern economy. Annual tuition, fees, and living expenses average more than $37,000 a year. At the most selective small colleges, the price tag can top $50,000. The tradition of liberal education has been to open minds rather than produce careers. But college has still long been a way for underprivileged kids to climb their way into the middle class, if they can get into a school. At one small college in rural Kentucky, the core mission is to make liberal arts education a ladder to prosperity. And tuition there is a bargain by any reckoning. It's free. Okay, so in today's lab, we're going to study some circuits. Uh, On a rainy afternoon, about a dozen students at Berea College are snug in their physics lab. Sophomore Tommy Boykin is the teaching assistant for today's class. He's helping the other students wire together an electronics experiment. This you have two batteries here. And we want to do is set it up such that this is your resistor, and you want the current running... Berea College is a small liberal arts school in the hills of east-central Kentucky. About 1,600 students go here. When Tommy Boykin was a high school student in his hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, Berea was not initially on his college wish list. Honestly, I want to go to an Ivy League school when I first was on my college charts. I wanted to go to Harvard and, you know, MIT. You know, I want to be a physicist. I'm thinking I need to go to the big schools. <laughs> but honestly, what I've learned here is, you know, it's really not about the name that you have. It's really about the program. What Boykin liked about Berea's physics program was its intimate size, a dozen physics majors taught by four professors. That means a lot of individual attention. But of course, there was that something else, the free tuition for all students and a free laptop computer. Most students come from a nine-state area of the southern Appalachian Mountains. And like Tommy Boykin, virtually all come from the bottom third of America's economic ladder. Sometimes we say we're looking for the the poor valedictorians. That's Berea College Dean of Enrollment Joe Bagnoli. Wanting to make certain that those students who have the academic potential to be successful in college but lack the resources are afforded that opportunity. Berea College has been offering a free education to poor and working-class people from the region since 1892. College President Larry Shin. And the idea was, we will provide a way for you to lift yourself up through your mind. So Berea really began as a utopian community focused on education. The school covers most of its costs through its $975 million endowment. But it also requires students to work at a variety of campus jobs to keep the school running or to bring in money. Students work as teaching assistants, landscapers, dormitory staff, and janitors, and some have slightly more exotic jobs. Well, I'm Jane Tonello, and I'm a senior here at Berea College, and I'm a pre-med biology major, and currently I'm working at weaving. She's working at a fly shuttle loom in Berea's weaving shop. With her right hand on the shuttle cord and her left on the beater bar, Tonello gets into an easy groove, making a blanket that will go on sale in the college's craft shop, which in turn supports the school. Jane Tonello is from Nashville, Tennessee. Her mom is a single parent who could not have afforded tuition at a conventional college or state university. Because when I entered college, my brother was also going to that, so my mother couldn't afford to pay for both me and my brother, so I was very, very fortunate that I got accepted here. Berea's leafy, small-town campus is pleasant, but no frills. To keep costs down, it has opted out of what some call the college arms race to build plush new dorms and elaborate athletic facilities. Another way Berea keeps costs down, professors here often teach more students per year than their colleagues do at more elite schools. Unlike more conventional colleges, a successful career at Berea is less about publishing books and scholarly articles than performance in the classroom. 
our primary mission here is teaching, and that's what we're supposed to do, and that is the absolute necessary qualification for tenure and promotion. That means humanities faculty like philosophy professor Robert Hogue spend more of their time teaching lower-level general education classes and less time running higher-level, more esoteric courses. I think most faculty are motivated by this mission that they see um, real value in offering this kind of education for students who otherwise don't have these kinds of opportunities. Uh, Much more rewarding than offering this kind of education to students who have all sorts of privilege. To pinch pennies and to improve teaching, Berea has also recently overhauled its academic structure, reducing 27 small academic departments to six broad divisions. That cuts duplication in administration and overhead. President Larry Shin says it also means that faculty members collaborate more in shaping and teaching the curriculum. This kind of interdisciplinary work, breaking down academic silos, is a hot discussion in higher education. That seems like such a radical thought, and many faculty thought it was very radical. I think that's a tepid notion of what's going to have to happen in higher education and restructuring the way we uh, organized ourselves to, to teach students, but also the way we structure knowledge. And so the liberal arts colleges that are going to survive uh, 30 years from now are not going to look like the ones we have now, except the very elite who can go ahead and do whatever they want to do, given the resources they have. Students from families who have struggled to survive economically often enter college with a kind of pragmatic and ground-level sensibility that more privileged kids may lack. All right, everybody, it is 718. If you have not checked your props, please do so now. Can I get an acknowledge? Green room acknowledge. Thank you, Green. Backstage at the Berea College Theater, the actors and crew are getting ready for an evening performance of the play The Children's Hour. They're pulling on costumes and applying makeup and gathering in the green room to await the opening curtain. I'm Katie Newquist. I'm a junior this year, and I'm majoring in theater. I'm Tracy Sisson, and I am also a junior, and I'm also majoring in theater. Newquist and Sisson come from Kentucky and Tennessee, from families near the bottom of the economic strata. So it's natural to wonder what their parents make of the career prospects for a theater major. In fact, Newquist first majored in education. Well, I mean, I had a long talk with my dad, actually, when I switched majors. I was like, Dad, I don't know what I'm doing. I know that I love theater, but I feel like a safer job's in education. And he told me, he said, you know, you do what you've got to do. You know, whatever makes you happy, because that's, you're going to be happy. Money will come and go, but happiness is something that you got to do. Yeah, I think Katie and I are lucky ones, because I know other people whose parents are not supportive of them majoring in theater. But my mom, mom has always been supportive because she knows that, um, you know, I'm not going to let myself starve. I'm going to make sure that I have everything I need and be happy. Uh, But she uh, is always really supportive. She'll be coming to see the show on Friday. Do you think that if you can't make a living in the theater, God forbid, (laughs) that uh, having had the education you've had here will prepare you to do other kinds of work? Yeah, totally. Um, Because a large part of what we do, like, focuses on, like, working well with people and being able to work well by yourself and just being very confident in yourself and your abilities. And that's stuff that's important no matter where you are or what you're doing. Yeah, we've (laughs) we've been taught here even that there's a lot of corporate jobs and other sorts of... um, career paths that are actually looking for people like us who've had experience in the arts, especially mm-hmm. theater, because of how how well we can work with one another and communicate with one another and put up with one another, too. <laughs> um, and I think, too, the liberal arts school, like, you know, you might have learned about something here, maybe just one class, but down the line, you might be qualified to do something else because you've learned that here at Berea. Right. Everybody, we have about eight minutes until the house opens. Eight, min- eight minutes until the house opens. And yeah. All right, we'll break a leg. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. So even in a tough economy with a job market smothered in gloom, there are still at least two young people majoring in the liberal arts, in theater no less, with the blessing of their parents. Who needs an English major? The question is really shorthand for who needs the liberal arts? And who needs college at all? Let's take that last question first. We're in an economy where uh, employers are being and will continue to be very, very choosy. This is McAllister College President Brian Rosenberg. 
So I do think that people who have a first-rate education and a flexible education will continue to have an advantage uh, in getting those jobs. Right now, the unemployment rate among people with a college degree is about 5%. The unemployment rate among people without a college degree is close to 15%. If you don't get a college degree, you're at a major disadvantage. Studies show that over a lifetime, college grads earn up to 80% more than people with just a high school education. But a recent Georgetown University study found that vocational undergraduate degrees, such as engineering, business, and healthcare, pay better than liberal arts degrees, especially right out of college. Berea College President Larry Shin still tells students that a liberal arts degree is better for the long run. Any job skill that you learn today will be obsolete in five years. Any job skill. Consequently, learning how to learn is incredibly important. And if you ask business people in the, in the world right now, in fact, there's been studies done by lots of national organizations, they're saying, what skills are you looking for in the new people you hire? People who can think well, can read difficult texts, can tackle complex problems and approach them from a variety of, of ways, and then articulate that, be able to express and communicate what they learn. Those are the skills of a liberal arts education. A liberal education is more than a good career investment, according to former Beloit College President Victor Farrell. It's good for the country. Liberal arts programs produce a high percentage of leaders in business, government, and society, he says, and he fears that as liberal arts programs contract, access will again be limited mostly to those with means, just as it was back in the early 20th century when a former president of Princeton University occupied the White House. Here's what President Woodrow Wilson said about liberal education. We want one class of persons to have a liberal education, and we want another class of persons, a very much larger class of necessity in every society, to forego the privilege of a liberal education and fit themselves to perform specific manual tasks. I think that's offensive. The great advantage of a liberal education open to all people is that it allows merit to rise to the top. And merit is what we need in this country. You've been listening to an American Radio Works documentary, Who Needs an English Major? The Future of Liberal Arts Education. The program was produced by me, Stephen Smith, and edited by Catherine Winter. The web producer is Andy Cruz. The American Radio Works team includes Emily Hanford, Suzanne Pico, Ellen Gettler, Craig Thorson, Frankie Barnhill, and Judy McAlpin. Special thanks to Chris Farrell, Sarah Buckingham, John Bewin, and Konstam Communications. To learn more about the future of higher education in this country, go to our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. You can look for our series called Tomorrow's College. While you're there, you can also sign up for our weekly education podcast, and you can tell us what you think of this program. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. Who Needs an English Major? The Future of Liberal Arts Education was supported by the Spencer Foundation and Lumina Foundation. This is APM, American Public Media.